It's May, 1640, and in Sant Andrew de Palomar in Barcelona, Spain, a group of itinerant farmers known as the Segradores, or Reapers, were draping a statue of Christ in black and raising it above their heads. It was their symbol as they protested the increasingly onerous demands of the Spanish government on the traditionally autonomous region of Catalonia. As the Bishop of Barcelona pleaded with them, the protest evolved into a riot, and over the next days, violence would spread over Barcelona, leading to the deaths of several reapers and the eventual assassination of the Count of Santa Coloma, the Viceroy of Catalonia. This riot soon gained the support of the bourgeois Generalitat of Catalonia, and soon the province was in full-scale rebellion in a protracted conflict known by the very metal name, the Reaper's War. In December 1640, a group of disgruntled Portuguese nobles and bourgeois known as the Forty Conspirators took advantage of the Spanish distraction in Catalonia and assassinated Spanish Secretary of State Miguel de Vasconcelos, then imprisoned Philip IV's cousin, the Duchess of Mantua, who had served as the Habsburg governor of Portugal. Immediately after, John, Duke of Braganza, was proclaimed King John IV of Portugal, and the Portuguese rebellion known as the Acclamation War had begun. In 1639, in France, a rebellion of both peasants and nobles against the reimposition of the hated gabile, or salt tax, erupted in Normandy. It was eventually suppressed with the death of some 300 people in Avrance. Almost 10 years later, the Parliament of Paris was in revolt against Cardinal Mazarin and Queen Regent Anne of Austria. The Parliament had attempted to rein in royal powers with constitutional limits, establishing the right to modify royal decrees, reduce current taxes, and approve new taxes. Anne and Mazarin initially caved to many of these demands, but later tried to imprison two of the protesting parliamentaires, which led to a Parisian uprising and a general armed conflict over the coming years. By 1647, in Naples, a revolt over increases in taxes on fruit and other foodstuffs broke out under the leadership of a curious figure named Massanello, eventually resulting in a wholesale revolt of the region against the Spanish and an independent Republic of Naples being declared in October of that year. The same year, rebellion erupted at the heart of Spain, in Andalusia, with towns and cities throughout the province rising against excess taxes amidst failing harvests. These Green Banner revolts would continue into the early 1650s. And in England, by 1647, King Charles I was in the custody of Parliament and would be in custody for the rest of his life, awaiting his trial and eventual execution. But much more on that later. These were the conditions against which the Peace of Westphalia was negotiated. Nearly every dynasty involved in the Thirty Years' War had strained to the breaking point its ability to marshal military and financial powers to pursue their continental ambitions. And now, across the continent, the bill was coming due. The attempts to subdue the nobility and extract funds from the peasantry had found their limit, and now the blowback was here. So while domestically, the leaders of France and Spain and England and others dealt with revolt, rebellion, and civil war, at Westphalia, they would each gather to attempt to redefine the very meaning of the state. So the French and Spanish monarchies evolved along similar lines, shaped as they were by similar geographic conditions and similar extended military conflicts with a foreign power. Both the Iberian Peninsula and the lands that would become France are defined by natural boundaries, as opposed to the vast open plains and riverine trade networks of Germany. The Spanish and French monarchies came into shape through a process of dominating linguistically and culturally distinct regions through the waging of war. In Spain, this was the Reconquista, the Holy War, to drive Muslim rulers across the Strait of Gibraltar that culminated in 1492, overseeing by the union of the principal Spanish regions of Castile and Aragon in the persons of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. You probably have heard of them, Columbus and whatnot. In France, we see the Valois dynasty emerge from the 100-year struggle against English and Burgundian opponents that saw English power on the continent reduced to their coastal enclave of Calais, and Burgundy eventually removed as an independent polity, becoming part of the Habsburg lands. 
Both monarchies rose to paramount status, capable of administering diverse realms from their capitals of Madrid and Paris by making strategic alliances with local military aristocrats. The family that made the best alliance could rise from the pack, but at the cost of recognizing the local autonomy of the other aristocratic families. This meant that while the necessities of waging war collected authority around the figure of the king, local elites organized into their corteses and parlements were always resisting the abrogation of their ancient rights and privileges. One lever of advantage the monarchy held in this process was his role as mediator of the conflicts between peasantry, city dwellers, and aristocrats, whose interests all clashed violently. By the time of the Thirty Years' War, the feudal economic model that had sustained these relationships was breaking apart at the precise moment that the perceived strategic interests of both of these states necessitated vast expenditures for military operations against each other. While Spain had access to the riches of their South American silver mines and France possessed the largest population and most fruitful agricultural output in Europe, the cost of war was staggering. In the 1620s, the French spent 16 million livres <laughs> on war. In the 30s, it was 33 million. The Spanish crown was forced to declare bankruptcy in 1627 before begging new lines of credit from Genoan bankers and devaluing its currency. The French monarchy sold offices of state to fund the war, with 50% of state revenue coming from the sale of offices by the 1630s. In both countries, the nobility chafed at being asked to chip in on military campaigns designed to boost the reputations and prestige of their rivals for power, the crown. When Olivares proposed his union of arms to establish a troop quota system in each region of Spain, the regional noble assemblies refused to raise the required forces or send funds. French nobles used their positions within the legal bureaucracy to resist the assertion of royal financial prerogatives. The only way the Bourbon or Habsburgs could gain leverage over their restive subjects was win the damn war already. So the search for more revenue saw both monarchies invoke long, unexercised regalian rights, established in the medieval era, which could raise money without requiring the consent of the local elite assemblies. In France, the telle, the direct tax on non-noble land, had been steadily rising since the late 1500s, and during the war, attempts were made to reduce the number of people who could claim exemption from it. This triggered local elite resistance. In both countries, excise taxes on home necessities, particularly salt, were levied and then raised. By the time of the Catalan Revolt, the effective Spanish tax rate on salt was 80%. This had the dangerous consequence of allying the interests of peasantry, city dwellers, and aristocrats together against the central authorities. It was this coalition that rose in revolt when Olivares determined to force the Catalans to offer some material sacrifice to a war effort that was increasingly being borne by Castile alone, sent an army into Catalonia to muster for an invasion of France. It was in resistance to the impositions of troop quartering and contribution that led the reapers to descend upon Barcelona. Olivares then demanded that John, Duke of Braganza, the leading aristocrat of Portugal, lead a military campaign into Catalonia to put down the revolt. Portugal had only been held as part of the Spanish Empire since the Iberian Union of 1588, and local resistance to Spanish rule had already generated a conspiracy among leading elite families that Duke John was happy to activate to launch his coup, better than marching off to an uncertain fate in a war he was not invested in. So Olivares, in his pursuit of reputation at all cost, which required him to defend to the utmost every corner of Spanish territory with no concept of strategic triage, saw the Spanish state crack under the pressure of his maximalist war drive. Of the challenge of managing the decaying Spanish empire, Olivares once wrote, you get to the mountaintop and then everything falls. <laughs> everything goes wrong. We never see a comforting letter. Not a dispatch arrives that does not tell us that everything is lost because we have failed to provide the money. By 1632, the task had broken the Count Duke. He would be allowed to retire, as Philip IV delicately put it, in 1643, the day after the death of Richelieu. All our greats are falling. Yep. Speaking of, Richelieu passed a formidable war machine onto his protege and possible boyfriend of the Queen Regent Anne of Austria, Cardinal Mazarin. But in building it, he had been forced to make concessions to the nobility that would undo much of his work after his passing. The selling of venal offices had provided revenue to the state and bought the support of the elites, but it also gave those elites positions of independent judicial authority with which to resist the extractive demands of the state. It was the parlements, the local courts for affirming royal ordinances, whose challenges to the king would force France to a final settlement at Westphalia. Of course, this was all in a context of alternating Little Ice Age drought and flood 
that destroyed entire harvests and saw grain prices rise to all-time highs, which sharpened the edge of every level of social conflict, driving towards inevitable civil rebellion. You mentioned him a bit ago, but I think it might be good to talk about uh, this figure, Mansaniello, uh, a second Masaniello. here. Mansaniello, a second here, uh, just because you know, in what you just said, you were uh, outlining how this conflict is mostly played out in these uh, groups of nobles asserting rights against the uh, increasingly centralizing uh, dynastic monarch, but also there are peasants and city dwellers involved in these things, but they can't seem to put together a political coalition in these material conditions. Can right. you talk about Mancinello? So Mancinello was a, a simple fisherman. He was a fisherman who lived in Naples, and uh, one day they were coming to charge people for the f- their new fruit excise in mm-hmm. the marketplace, and he, among others, was pissed about it. And uh, in that moment, he became one of those figures who emerges in, 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 in a crisis, who, who gathers the energy of the crowd is in, and is able to direct it in a way it otherwise would not have been. Uh, and he is able to become master of the city ve- very quickly. But in a context where all of the real power and authority rests in these machinery of power that the Spanish uh, rulers have and that is held locally by the grandees, uh, Masanello sort of at the, ends up being at the mercy of the local Nepalese elites who essentially manipulate him to their own ends. They bring him into the court. They, I think they even like put a crown on him or something. You know, they're like, yeah, yeah, yes, you are. We, we respect yeah, you're the guy. We love you. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. But meanwhile, they're working to uh, marginalize him and gain for themselves better concessions from the Spanish or maybe the French, because they're also some thought about uh, bringing in the Duke of Guise as the new king of Naples. Uh, and, Pretty quickly, though, Massanello realizes that he doesn't actually have any power, and uh, he kind of goes crazy. Yeah, and like one week after he takes control of the city, he has a pretty uh, epic nervous breakdown uh, of sorts that is sometimes referred to as like a religious fervor or something. But uh, I think from the historical perspective, you can pretty much uh, call it a, uh, yeah, see it a, as a nervous breakdown in the uh, in the halls of Napoli's government. He, kind of, he knew it was happening. He yeah. knew that he was not going to be able to stay where he was. And sure enough, very quickly after that, he was killed by his erstwhile uh, uh, collaborators. Uh, we should also say that, you know, while it doesn't quite fit into this narrative time frame here, these systems of noble revolt extend into the uh, 1650s and beyond. In 1653, there is a, uh, a peasant revolts take place in both Sweden and Switzerland that I think you could pretty directly say come from the effects of fighting, fighting this prolonged war. And in every one of these cases, when the, when the peasants rise, their demands are uh, long live the king and down with bad government. Mm-hmm. There is no conception that they are going to replace the monarchy as such, the society of orders as such. What they demand is a return to an imagined past relationship where their rights are more respected. Right. Where not really being able to conceive of the fact that things are different now because conditions have changed. Right. And we will see this going forward uh, in the next two episodes, this kind of uh, polite fiction that exists when reform is demanded over and over that, no, 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 the king is not misled. He simply has bad advisors around it. And and we need to take these bad people who are giving bad information to the king, who is just and good and uh, provided by God the authority to rule us. And this is because the uh, language of critique necessary to create a mass resistance to monarchy as such hasn't developed yet but maybe we'll see it develop it just might. a little bit maybe if there's a place where i don't know there's a, a little more literacy yeah uh you know a few more city dwellers uh, we'll, we'll find out so With this background of the major combatants' domestic situations, we return again to Westphalia, 1643, the great negotiation to end the war. Frederick V of the Palatinate was dead. Ferdinand II was dead. Richelieu was dead. Louis XIII was dead. Philip III was dead. James I was dead. Gustavus Adolphus was dead. Maurice of Orange was dead. Wallenstein, Mansfeld, Tilly, Poppenheim, and even Count Thurn were now dead. Christian Anhalt was dead. George William was dead. Bernard Sachs Weimar was dead. The entire generation of leaders who had started, prosecuted, and prolonged the Thirty Years' War were gone, save for Maximilian I of Bavaria and, of course, Beer George of Saxony. I'm a survivor! I'm going to make it! (laughs) Those remaining princes exerted increased influence over Ferdinand III and the nature of the negotiations. 
Though he was much more motivated to arrive at a general peace than his father, he still found his credibility disastrously compromised. Again, partially thanks to that infernal information machine, the printing press. In the early 1640s, a book titled Dissertatio de Ratione Status in Imperio Nostro Romano Germanico appeared in German markets. Written under a pseudonym by a Swedish historiographer, Bogislav von Chemins, the work was an insistent, dramatic, and cuttingly rationally argued takedown of Habsburg overreach during the war. The work outlined all the ways the imperial forces had circumvented the imperial constitution to widen their own dynastic power while simultaneously revealing the deep weaknesses of their positions. Yes, Ferdinand III Habsburg was owned by facts and logic in the marketplace of ideas. Against this general sentiment, German princes resisted Ferdinand's attempt to negotiate the peace domestically in an imperial diet and instead pushed Ferdinand to recognize the already organizing Westphalian conferences involving the princes and their foreign allies. Once these protests included the emperor's strongest ally, Maximilian of Bavaria, he had no choice but to yield. The Westphalian negotiations would be given the weight of an imperial decree. Finally, as mentioned last episode, negotiations were also delayed by the Danes screwing around in the Baltic. King Christian continued to harass Swedish and Dutch interests in the Baltic with onerous sound dues, taxes for passing goods through the Orusund Strait between Denmark and Sweden. After the Danes began a naval blockade of Hamburg, the Swedes engaged in a short but decisive war against Denmark from 1643 to 1645, effectively ending Danish pretensions at mastering the Baltic. So finally then, it's all settled. And on December 4th, 1644, representatives from France, Spain, Sweden, the United Provinces, Austria, the German princes, the Pope, Italian city-states, and over a hundred other political entities opened their Congress in Westphalia to figure this whole thing out. Peace negotiations had been agonizingly long in coming. France and the Habsburgs had been sounding each other out diplomatically since 1636, but the resistance both regimes faced in raising tax revenue finally drove them to a formal process in 1643. Bringing such a large body of diplomats together was a daunting logistical and protocol challenge. For starters, while Spain and France, the Catholic powers, sent their negotiators to the fully Catholicized but Westphalian city of Munster of Anabaptist fame, the Swedish delegation set up shop in the bi-confessional Lutheran Catholic city of Onsnebrück, which had been taken by Swedish forces in 1633. So in these two cities, negotiations began to resolve the conflict between Spain and France, France and the Holy Roman Empire, Sweden and Spain, Sweden and France, Sweden and the Holy Roman Empire, and let's not forget the United Provinces and the Spanish Netherlands and the United Provinces in Spain and the United Provinces and the Holy... You know what? You get it. It took six months from the convocation of the talks to figure out in what order the delegates would sit and in what order they should enter rooms. The senior French diplomat, Longueville, never even met his Spanish counterpart because over the long years of talks, they failed to agree on formalities of address and interaction. <laughs> One persistent impediment to an agreement was Spain's reluctance to accept the fait accompli of Dutch independence. Also, the Pope's attempt to assert church influence was resisted by basically everyone. When the papal nuncio set up a dais to represent the Vatican, the French delegates insisted on its removal. One of those French delegates arrived with a pregnant wife in tow. The joke in Munster at the time was that her child would be born, grow old, die, and be buried in the ground before an agreement was signed. But the French minister's decision to bring a wife and to plant a garden at his residence was meant to show to all that he was willing to stay as long as it took to gain a settlement. Of course, during all these tedious months and years of protocol debate, the armies of the various powers remained in the field, listlessly pawing at each other and despoiling the countryside in the hopes of increasing their leverage at the negotiating table. The overall makeup of the main players in the delegation left a lot to be desired and included some classic comedic pairings. Axel Oxensterna had sent his fail son Johann, a, quote, large, red-faced, rather stupid man, easily rattled, very haughty, too fond of wine and women. He would signal his rising, dining, and retiring with a fanfare that everyone in Osnabrück could hear. He was balanced by his competent subordinate, Johann Salvius, who had been sent to more vigorously pursue peace by Queen Christina, now finally 18 and ruling in her own name. The French delegation was also rather blundering, with confidence way above their abilities, and regularly committing gaffes like giving a speech too enthusiastically recommending Catholic religious toleration to the Dutch, ever paranoid of crypto-Catholics in their midst. 
The Spanish delegation as well was led by the dim Count Guzman de Penarada, known to be impulsive, deceitful, and with the Spanish tendency to, quote, strain over details and miss the main issue. Balanced by a more capable number two, Antoine Brun. The Dutch representatives were generally more capable, but with one member representing the pro-Spanish peace party and one member representing the pro-French Orangist war party, they had their own internal tensions. The Habsburgs were represented by Maximilian Troutmansdorf, another person of general competence, tact, and good humor, though described as thick-set, tall, and singularly ugly. But he did not arrive until almost 1646. Troutmansdorf's arrival, purposely done in near secrecy without much fanfare to disarm the other diplomats, was in many ways the final signal that the emperor was truly ready to negotiate. Oh, and just as an aside, the Current Austrian ambassador to Prague is a gentleman named Ferdinand Troutmansdorf. So, you know, file under the past isn't really dead. All these guys are still kicking around in largely the same positions. Finally, the whole thing was mediated by the easygoing and conciliatory Papal Nuncio Fabio Chigi and the Venetian ambassador Alviz Contarini, who is prone to fly into a rage at the most basic disagreement. Together, these moderators exerted just enough influence for almost everyone to accuse them of prejudice and too little to have any marked effect. So, a lot of names there. Those will not be on the test, but just wanted to give you a sense of how hilariously dysfunctional this whole thing is. Uh, They were not sending their best. Almost every important delegation had deep internal conflicts or that classic dumb, haughty, superior, slash frustrated, competent, subordinate dynamic. It's a, it's a whole congress of Zap Brannigans and Kiff Croakers. If we can hit that bullseye, the rest of the dominoes will fall like a house of cards. Checkmate. <sighs> yes, because that job of being a diplomat is uh, one of those second son jobs that goes to aristocrats who aren't going to inherit the uh, estate. Uh, and you get, as that with anything, you get a very wide degree of abilities. <laughs> uh, and uh, since it's, it's a table and not a battlefield the outcomes are less uh decisive so Mm -hmm. you can hang around a lot for a while being a goofball especially if you have a competent subordinate who will do all the real work yes and then you get to just enjoy all the all the state dinners oh yeah that sounds fun honestly (laughs) i I would definitely want to be a diplomat about all these gigs if i was if i was an aristocratic fail son let me go to a foreign place and just eat everyone's meal yes mid 1640s 1650s send me as your diplomat to venice Absolutely. That's where I would want to hang out. All you got to do is figure out different ways to tell the doge that his mistress looks good. That's it. So the complex series of issues to be decided came under four main categories. One. The original complaints of the German estates, which included settling the actual constitutional rights of the emperor and, crucially, a final religious settlement for the Holy Roman Empire. Two, what conditions of amnesty would be extended to the rebels, which notably included figuring out what to do with the Palatine Electoral Office. Three, satisfying demands of the foreign allies, which included transferring of occupied lands to France and Sweden, as well as indemnification payments to disband their armies. And four... Other payments for dispossessed lands, including issues like compensating the elector of Brandenburg for ceding Pomerania to the Swedes and Maximilian of Bavaria for any land ceded to the Palatine elector. The main questions of religious expression within the Holy Roman Empire, which had, been, which had animated the war in its earliest phase, had been largely settled by the Peace of Prague. Everyone acknowledged that the Habsburgs would be unable to extend the Counter-Reformation to the principalities that resisted it. Likewise, that Lutheranism could not effectively reach lands under Habsburg control. The only live question was, which normative year would be agreed upon as the point when the possession of ecclesiastical offices and territories would be recognized? The emperor, of course, sought an early date from the heady days of White Mountain. Sweden and the Lutheran princes pressed for a date closer to the Protestant high tide a decade later. Regardless of the date chosen, all sides understood that the peace would result in the deconfessionalization of power politics in the empire. The states of mid-17th century Europe would still exist in a state of conflict over influence and prestige and resources, but that conflict would never again be premised on religious distinction. The fires of confessional conflict burned too ferociously to contain. From this understanding, the principle of cuis regio, eus religio would be affirmed for good and all. 
So this is basically who's going to get what bishoprics. Indeed. And ecclesiastical lands. Right. Whose possession each of those conquered religious lands ends up in possession of. The final date agreed on for religious settlement was January 1st, 1624. A compromise between Protestant and Catholic high points actually suggested by John George. Always looking for a compromise. Indeed. Religious boundaries were restored to that time with Calvinism added to the available regional religious menu. Quius regio Ius religio would return and additional toleration would be granted for subjects who did not wish to convert to the religion of their ruler. For his part, Maximilian of Bavaria attempted to negotiate a policy of strengthening intra-German unity by removing foreign influences. He pushed to cede Alsace to France and Pomerania to Sweden in hopes that these concessions would reduce foreign motivations to meddle in German politics. This failed miserably as France and Sweden got their territories while smaller German principalities still sought foreign aid for their own goals whenever they could get it. Bit by bit, Trautsmansdorf was worn down, the emperor conceded, demands of all parties were satisfied, and by January 1647, Alsace was given to France and Pomerania to Sweden. Sweden was further granted an indemnity of $5 million, which it mostly used to pay its troops to disband. The Alsatians and Pomeranians rather impotently pleading that they did not want to be French and Swedish were ignored. The fate of the Palatinate was determined. Maximilian would keep the Palatinate's original electoral vote, but Charles Louis, Frederick V's son and heir, would be restored to the Rhenish Palatinate and given a new eighth electoral vote, which seems complicated to me because you can do ties there. Yeah, now you got ties coming into things. But I, I imagine it still goes by the same thing as like they, they essentially see which way the wind's going and uh, vote unanimously every time. And Habsburgs keep the Holy they Roman kept- Empire throne until the very bitter end. Right, yeah. I mean, part of it is that the stakes have, by the, by the very nature of this agreement, the stakes of being Holy Roman Emperor have dramatically reduced. Yes. So it's a vote that uh, that that really doesn't have the same meaning as it did at the beginning of the conflict, and it is one of those classic decisions that appeases everyone and satisfies no one. Though honestly, it's probably more than Charles Lewis deserved, considering how badly his dad screwed this whole thing up. On Seriously, this one. the fact that the Palatinate Whittlesbox caught out of this with anything other than a swift kick in the rear is remarkable. Uh, crazy, but that's reputation. Yep. Got to satisfy reputation. Indeed. In January 1648. The Spanish and the United Provinces finally came to peace. The 80 Years War was now over, and the independent Dutch Republic was born. The Spanish Netherlands would wither under the flailing Spanish, and Amsterdam would become the trade center for the region, and Antwerp consigned to centuries of decline. A million territorial adjustments were made. The Swiss, who had achieved de facto independence from the empire centuries ago, were finally recognized as their own thing. The Palatinate was split into two between Charles Louis and Maximilian. Brandenburg and Sweden worked out the borders with Pomerania. Julik Cleves, who we, I don't even think we've mentioned here, but they had their own uh, succession crisis that had been brewing in the background of this entire thing since 1609. That was resolved. Various prince bishoprics changed hands, including some designated to alternate between appointing Catholic and Lutheran princes, which also seems insane. <laughs> but on October 24th, 1648, it was all settled with some appropriate bungles. Ferdinand III's final orders arrived without a key to decode it, which took them time to resolve. The order the diplomats would sign the treaties required three weeks of debate after the political terms had been settled. Even on the day of the signing, the deputies assembled at 9 a.m. and had to wait until 2 p.m. for the lead ambassadors to arrive, and then both treaties were signed. Seventy cannons shot three celebratory salvos from the city walls. The war was over. So the so-called Peace of Westphalia is actually comprised two different treaties. The Treaty of Munster, which officially settled hostilities between France and the Holy Roman Empire, and the Treaty of Osnabrück, which between Sweden and the Holy Roman Empire. Spain officially recognized Dutch independence, but the war between France and Spain would continue until 1659, just no longer to be fought in Germany. By this point, France had troops stationed in Catalonia and was angling to break that rich region away from Spanish control altogether. Portuguese, having effectively achieved independence from Spain, still had a colonial war with the Dutch to settle. But the treaties would finally end the bloodshed in German-speaking Europe and establish a basis for religious peace in that region. The Pope, Innocent X, was not thrilled about it, denouncing the agreement as no, void, invalid, iniquitous, unjust, damnable, reprobate, inane, empty of meaning, and effect for all time. Everyone's a fucking critic.
after all of this, when you look at what has been wrought by this conflict and you look at the result of it, it's hard not to have even more sympathy for John George of Saxony, who we've been ragging on this entire time as, you know, a, a, a bit of a flip-flopper, a, a waffler, a, yeah, a, a John a, Kerry type a, guy. A jelly, a jelly spine, you know, he he's all, he's always in the background trying to, uh, you know, appease a momentary interest for, for, for best conditions and in the process never ending up quite on the winning side. But what would you say about the legacy of John George? John George is a character that is I think most recognizable to uh, a viewer of these events from distance in that his uh, goal throughout the whole thing uh, is just to find a way to stop the fighting, to to keep himself and, and the Empire from uh, a war that the uh, value of which was very hard to see. And uh, when you look at what actually happened, uh, it's hard not to uh, credit him for a, a, a foresight and a sensitivity to the conditions that his uh, fellow princes lacked. Yes, I think... When you look back at martial history and the history of these epic European wars, the narrative motivation, you know, especially when you're trying to tell a story, is tell one of heroes, of, of bravery, of, of people who went out on a limb and sacrificed for great gains and maybe died tragically with uh, heroic losses or something like that. But in the end, I think almost anyone who listened to this from your position now uh, would have to admit we would all be John George. We yeah. would all be looking at this insanity and saying, we had a pretty good thing going. Why are you screwing it up? Indeed. And also because we're all big wusses. Though the peace was signed on October 24th, 1648, the last military action concluded on November 1st. In the months leading up to the signing, one final Swedish offensive had made it all the way to Prague and put the city under siege. The Swedes were unable to take the old town of the city as the resilient Czech militia, filled out by citizen volunteers and university students, valiantly held the Charles Bridge against wave after wave of attacks. And so the Swedes set to do what may as well have been the singular purpose of the offensive, a mass pillage of the city of Prague. Up to the moment the news of the peace reached them, the Swedes reveled in what the war had mostly been about, a squalid orgy of loot. This ransacking included much of the wonder collection of the old orb-pondering Emperor Rudolf II, including such items as the Codex Gigas, the largest extant medieval manuscript in the world. To this day, the Codex is still displayed at the National Library in Stockholm. It's notable for its unusual, massive illustration of Satan. So after all the speeches and pamphlets and cross-bearing processions, the real purpose of the war is revealed in its dying days. A Protestant army raiding churches to make away with candelabras and reliquaries. This was the real work of the Reformation, carrying off and melting down the wealth of the Catholic Church turning the fixed symbols of a faded religious authority into tradable tokens for use in an increasingly overbearing commercial economy. From a gold crucifix to a pile of gold coins, the transubstantiation of the modern world. So, that's the end. But the end of what exactly? The Thirty Years' War was over. The most accepted common estimate for the total number of dead from the conflicts is around 8 million people, though some estimates go to over 12 million. Around 450,000 from actual combat, the rest from the various atrocities let loose on the civilian population. Depending on how you define the area, that could be up to 20% of Europe's population. For comparison, World War I, including the post-war Spanish flu outbreak, claimed about 5% of Europe's population. So it was also the end of a generation of acute trauma across the continent. It was effectively the end of the wars of religion, the entire series of murderous conflicts that had begun with Martin Luther and the Wittenberg Cathedral door 13 decades earlier. It was the end of the dream of universal Christendom, of a universal monarch. Never again would even the most zealous of religious leaders or deluded of dynastic schemers imagine a Europe completely united under a single faith or a single crown. And, we would argue, it was the end of feudalism. 
the violent death rattle of a system that could no longer be sustained, at least not in Western Europe. Of course, the forms of feudalism would persist in some places for centuries, but at the bleeding edge of political and economic development, it would never be seen again. It was the end, but then what was next? The state. The dynastic power structure of feudalism reached a terminal crisis in the 16th century. That system, if you remember, military aristocratic families extracting agricultural surplus from peasantry in an escalating triangle of tribute relationships, all presided over by a sovereign monarchy whose power and access to surplus came from his ability to marshal resources to defend and expand the territory of that particular network of aristocratic families, all of whom fiercely guarded their rights to tax and administer justice in their own territories. This system was validated by the divine will of God, as certified by the one true and universal Catholic Church, which operated its own peasant surplus-exploiting power structure that both propped up and competed with royal and noble authority. In this mode of production, there was little incentive for at any level to improve agricultural output. For the peasants, it would just be confiscated. For the noble landowner, surplus could only be spent on personal luxuries and armies of servants to advance their prestige and esteem. Trade networks defined political boundaries, but trade was hindered by a lack of gold and silver specie and the demands of the landed nobility. The Black Death broke open a stagnant feudal order, and once peasants began using the new degree of physical and social leeway to move to cities, the resultant demographic and technological explosion ruptured the load-bearing members of the feudal order. The conflict between classes and within elite power structures was a constant churn, undermining those structures. In this context of class struggle, demographic growth drove dynastic regimes into conflict, Military innovation raised the capital investment necessary to fight those conflicts, and banking and religious innovations increased the size, influence, and speed of the financial economy. All of this depended upon a concept of surplus extraction that disincentivized the improvement of agricultural output. To accommodate, new structures emerged, primarily in the dynamic urban trade centers of northern Italy, Germany, and the Low Countries. But political power was still hoarded by the landed aristocracy and the church, who had no interest in handing any over to the upstart town dwellers. This stalemate was again broken by an exogenous shock, the Little Ice Age, which rapidly deteriorated the already tenuous productive basis of this mode of production. The process of fighting the war accelerated the creation of a new political power structure to accommodate this changing economic structure. No longer would the prerogatives of power be distributed among a patchwork quilt of feudal authorities deriving their power from a universal church. Westphalia recognized the beast that had emerged from the carnage of the war, a secular state administered by a sovereign ruling not on behalf of divine right, but through their control of the administrative apparatus, a monopoly on the maintenance and deployment of military force, borrowing authority, tax collection, and justice. The sovereign determined the religious makeup of the state and ruled in some consultation with the urban, noble, and peasant classes, a consultative arrangement that was at the sovereign's discretion to create and maintain. Each state would respect the legitimacy of each other's internal governing structures with no more ability to call down crusades on religious dissenters and claim their lands in the process. The dream of universal monarchy was dead, replaced by a balance of powers, a balance determined by the relative strength of the individual states. Some states would rise in wealth and influence, some would fall, as always according to the will of God, but now God's will would not be determined in church conclaves, but in the marketplace. The states that used their agricultural surplus most effectively, investing in capital-intensive industry, would be able to wage more effective warfare and make more extensive colonial conquests, which would give them greater influence over the international trade networks that sustained European economic activity. The medium-sized power competitive framework that had defined European politics since the fall of Rome would persist, but the forces at competition were no longer bands of warrior cousins with swords and crosses, but bureaucratic state operatives with muskets and stock certificates. Now, to be fair, more recent historiography has sought to downplay the association of some of these principles with the Peace of Westphalia itself, which is more focused on resolving the thousand little conflicts of the war than on establishing any kinds of principles or governing ideals of sovereignty in the state. It's not really as much the text of the treaty itself as this distinct inflection point between the past and future trajectory of these polities. History is a process rather than a moment, and historiography, as much as I think about it, is, is kind of like calculus about finding the slope of the curve at any given moment, if that makes sense. I'm getting off a little bit in, in a more theoretical discussion here, uh, whether or not you want to quibble with the term Westphalian sovereignty being technically accurate to states in the 19th or 20th centuries, something important definitely happened here in 1648. 
And figuring out what it is is why we've made and you've listened to the 10 or so hours of podcast up to this point. But we can't just leave all our friends here, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Holy Roman Empire. We need some closure, right? How does the shift into modernity treat all these pugnacious goofballs we've come to love and or loathe? Well, we're going to wrap up this episode with the Animal House Where Are They Now segment. Starting with the French. Because within 50 or so years of Westphalia, all those previously sordid nobles had indeed traded their arms and regimental commissions for perfume and robes at Versailles. As we noted at the top of this episode, at basically the same time as the Peace of Westphalia was being signed, France was plunged into a series of conflicts and civil wars known as the Fronde. The initial rebellion was the Parlement of Paris against increased tax obligations and carried the veneer of constitutional legitimacy, such as ostensive demands to convene an estate's general. But this soon gave way to a series of petty grabs for increased power, prestige, and control over the various levers of state by the princely nobles, many of whom were returning veterans of the Thirty Years' War, hardened by combat and leading their own commands of troops. Louis XIV was a boy at this time. He was born in 1638, and the Fronde lasted from 1648 until early 1653. Though Anne and Mazarin were able to eventually overcome these rebellions that at various points oriented basically every level of French society against the crown, young Louis was deeply influenced by these terrifying usurpations of his youth and led him directly down the path towards a monarchy around which everything would revolve, the Sun King. The newly empowered secular state that Richelieu handed off to Mazarin and Louis XIV was, with the humbling of the nobles after the Fronde and the final expulsion of the Huguenots with the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, finally capable of marshalling its productive capacity to the task of becoming the hegemonic power in Europe. While the Sun King fought on battlefields from the North Sea to Italy, seeking to gain territory and install rulers in Spain and Austria, France's opportunity to seize the reins of continental power was defeated in her colonies. Those venal offices that the crown used to mollify noble descent were the most profitable investment any ambitious capital holder in France could make. This had the effect of starving France's colonial holdings of private capital at a time when British investment poured into her overseas holdings. Meanwhile, in France itself, peasant agricultural practices went largely unchanged as the French industrial economy lagged behind the more dynamic and agriculturally productive British. The consequences for this asymmetry would finally be faced after France's disastrous defeat in the Seven Years' War, which set the hexagon on a course of stagnation, intractable crisis, and eventually Madame la Guillotine on the Place de la Concorde. Underscoring what we're getting at with the title and thrust of this episode, Louis XIV, one of the most powerful monarchs to ever rule in Europe, uh, never actually said l'état c'est moi, I am the state. Uh, that was attributed to him in the mid-19th century. What he did say, and as attested to at the time, was on his deathbed, je me, God, I'm, I'm so terrible <laughs> at fucking French. Je me va malétat de toujours. I am leaving, but the state will always remain. The king dies, the king lives, but vive la France forever. The state persists. So next, we'll turn to Spain. At the start of our story, Spain was the undisputed superpower of the European continent and for a time, the known world. Now at the end of the Thirty Years' War, the Spanish Empire was entering its death throes. A concerted military effort eventually reclaimed Catalonia, but at the cost of letting Portugal go. The rest of the 17th century was a reckoning for Spain, shedding territory, losing contests over colonial positions, financially spiraling and suffering a notorious deficit of capable leadership. This comically tragic downfall comes to be symbolically and physically embodied in the person of Charles II Habsburg, Carlos the Bewitched, son of Philip IV, who ruled over the Peace of Westphalia and the King of Spain from 1665 to 1700. Charles II was the end result of the glorious Habsburg breeding project, freakishly deformed, mentally and physically infirm, and infertile. I'll let Matt get into the details of his deformity because I know he likes talking about it, but... I'm just going to run down some of the spectacular background of his lineage. His family tree was effectively a seven-generation circle. Philip and Joanna of Castile were both his maternal and paternal great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. 
His lineage includes three instances of uncle-niece marriage, three instances of first-cousin marriage, and two instances of second-cousin marriage. Just like to dig into this because it's funny. Charles II's paternal grandparents, Philip III and Margaret of Austria, were first, second, and third cousins. Well, wait, because Philip III was also his maternal great-grandfather. His other maternal great-grandfather, Ferdinand II, had married the daughter of William V of Bavaria, who was both his uncle and first cousin, making Maria Anna and Ferdinand II both first cousins and first cousins once removed. Charles's maternal grandparents, Ferdinand III and Maria Anna of Spain, were first cousins, second cousins once removed, third cousins, third cousins once removed, and fourth cousins. Charles's parents, Philip IV and Mariana of Austria, were fourth cousins, third cousins, second cousins, first cousins, and uncle and niece. To put it another way, Charles had four unique great-great-great-great-grandparents instead of the 64 any of us might have. So you, happy Austria, marry indeed. So, like, you don't have to follow it, but you get the uh, chaos that went into it. Matt, what do you have on Charles II and the fate of Spain? Sometimes and places demand a great personage to embody them, and few times or places were more perfectly embodied than Spain in the second half of the 17th century by King Charles II. No one could have better presided over the cascading series of military defeats, crop failures, and bankruptcies than Carlos the Bewitched. The bill for centuries of parasitic inbreeding had come due. The famously prominent Habsburg jaw was so damn prominent in Charles's case that he drooled constantly and suffered stomach upset from being unable to properly chew his food. He was beset by hormone deficiencies, hydrocephalus, and rickets. He weighed 82 pounds soaking wet and unsurprisingly failed to produce an heir or even consummate a sexual relationship. Even with all of his ailments, Charles managed to rule from 1665 to 1700. His autopsy found his heart was the size of a peppercorn. His lungs corroded, his intestines rotten and gangrenous. He had a single testicle, black as coal, and his head was full of water. (laughs) The last Habsburg (laughs) king of Spain left a disputed succession that would end after a war with France with a bourbon relative of Louis XIV on the throne in Madrid. The bag had been fumbled. The Spanish state that emerged was lashed to a backward agricultural economy and colonial holdings dominated by their own landowning aristocracy and incapable of competing on the same level as states it had once overawed. It would take the upheavals of the French revolutions to break up the stagnant miasma besetting Spain. Italy. We can kind of blow past this. My apologies to fellow Italians. Uh, The various Italian city-states, including the Papal States, continue to be a football for other influential European powers for another few centuries, which is why it doesn't really become a thing until the 19th century. Many of the cities remain rich, influential, essential nodes of European trade, but never exert the same strategic importance after the mid-17th century. The merchant oligarchies that had emerged to claim power in the trading cities of northern Italy in the medieval period were able to direct resources to the creation of many of the financial technologies that would be critical to the emergence of capitalism. But the revolutionary potential of things like double-entry bookkeeping and star forts was neutralized by the fact that the city-states were small relative to the size of their continental powers and evenly matched relative to each other, preventing the emergence of a single sovereign polity capable of battling on equal footing with the dynasties of Western Europe. So those merchant oligarchies were forced over time into subservient relationships with France and Austria and Spain. Meanwhile, despite their dramatic Naples uprising, the rural hinterlands of southern Italy remained in a feudal relationship with the Spanish crown. The the Pope held the balance in the middle, keeping central Italy in a theocratic vice. It took until the 19th century for the descendants of the Savoyard kings who played such a crucial role in financing the Bohemian rebels in the early days of the war to preside over the creation of an Italian state encompassing the entire peninsula. Sweden made it out of the Thirty Years' War. I mean, what would you say, Matt? Considering at various points they had conquered Munich and Prague, their eventual rewards of parts of Pomerania, hereditary control of some of the bishoprics, and permanent seats on the imperial diet, and of course enough money to pay their troops, could be seen as rather paltry. Mm. Queen Christina turned out to be a fairly idiosyncratic figure by 17th century standards. Uh, There's a lot to get into with her, but I'll just say it's worth reading up on your own. Flaunting the royal standards of female dress and styling, she developed way more interest in academic and cultural pursuits and ended up abdicating the throne and converting to Catholicism by the mid-1650s. Sweden itself enjoyed its dominant position in the Baltic for pretty much the rest of the 17th century, finally neutralizing Denmark-Norway in the 
1650s. Sweden even gets in on the American colonial game, establishing a colonial interest along the Delaware River from 1638 to 1655, which is, as Matt's fond of pointing out, why Delaware is its own thing and not just part of Maryland or Pennsylvania. Uh, Sweden turns its attention back east and ends up fighting in Poland and Russia forever, slowly diminishing power as these eastern powers eclipse them. We should also note that Queen Christina is responsible for killing Rene Descartes by making him get up too early. What is this story? So Rene Descartes, who, by the way, was at White Mountain in the Imperial Army, uh, was eventually hired to be a tutor to the young queen and moved to Stockholm. And his entire life, he... uh, Got up when he wanted to, basically. Uh, In the the French manner. In the French fashion. But uh, Queen Christina insisted on 6 a.m. lessons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And very quickly, he basically just died. I mean, (laughs) they say it was pneumonia or whatever, but uh, I truly believe it's because he just couldn't handle getting up that early. (laughs) So the poultry and temporary gains Sweden acquired for their participation in the Thirty Years' War came at a massive cost. The Swedish crown's precocious taxation and conscription capacities meant that they were able to raise armies from among their own population rather than rely on mercenary captains. And this led to a massive loss of life among Swedish and Finnish men in an already sparsely populated country. Some Swedish districts saw drops in male population of 40% over the course of the war, with boys as young as 15 filling draft quotas. Sweden's grasp for continental power would founder as its colonial holdings in America were gobbled up by the Dutch, Old peg-leg Peter Stuyvesant claimed New Sweden just before the Duke of York's English fleet showed up at New Amsterdam Harbor. And the inescapable conflict matrix with Russia and Poland wore them back down to the status of a Baltic backwater. Next, we'll look back at the ground zero for this whole thing. It's Germany. As we have extensively covered, German lands and people were devastated from the war. As one soldier said as the last army straggled away from Westphalia, I was born in war. I have no home, no country, and no friends. War is all my wealth, and now whither shall I go? In imperial lands, the last great general left at the top of the command was Piccolomini, and he had to organize the demobilization of more than 200,000 people, soldiers and their numerous camp followers, whose only means of self-support was the now-concluded war. The concert of rival princes and principalities, Landgravites and bishoprics in Germany would persist But if there was one victor out of the debacle of the 17th century, it was the electors of Brandenburg. Frederick William, the elector of Brandenburg at the end of the war, turned his attentions east, and through cunning foreign policy, negotiating between Poland and Sweden, was eventually able to knit together Brandenburg and Prussia into a single kingdom, of which his son Frederick I would be the first king. Frederick William, a fierce Calvinist, also adopted many of the military innovations encountered through the Swedes and would pursue turning Prussia into a military and industrial dynamo that would come to take the center stage in the eventual German unification. The breaking of Habsburg influence over northern Germany made the rise of a Protestant German power inevitable. The merger of Brandenburg with its urbanized commercial economy and the former territory of the Teutonic Knights in Prussia with its powerful military aristocracy and feudal agricultural economy created a machine that could take the administrative and military advancements of Sweden and the Netherlands and apply them to Germany itself. Prussia would never be the economic engine of the German lands, but its efficient use of military resources allowed it to punch dramatically above its weight, especially under the leadership of Frederick the Great during the Seven Years' War. It was the Prussian Hohenzollern dynasty, not the Habsburgs, who would finally suborn the German states into a sovereign entity in 1871. So to me, I guess, you know, part Italian, part German. So I think about my, you know, the German people, the German heritage. This is basically the inflection point between the beer and sausage Germany and the Iron Cross Germany. Uh, you know, a, a trauma that shows it's, it's enterprising new generation that if we're going to avoid being kicked around by our shitty institutions, we're going to have to harden ourselves to overpower them. But who has the last laugh? John George. Because you've got your Prussian Hohenzollerns and your Bavarian Wittelsbachs. All of them, by the end of the Great War, their crowns are in the gutter. But a cadet branch of John George's House of Wetton in the Duchy of Saxe-Coburg und Gotha would end up surviving the fall of eagles to rule into the 21st century. Although they did change their name to the Windsors for PR reasons. <laughs> well, a little more on the Windsors later, mm-hmm. too. But uh, keep in mind that uh, John George is way back in the uh, House of Windsor genealogy. Mm-hmm. To 
the southeast in Austria, the Habsburgs hold on to power. As Matt outlines above, the Holy Roman Empire persists, but as an institution with any power that anybody really gives a shit about, it's washed. The Habsburgs remain Holy Roman Emperors until Napoleon, old history on horseback, knocks the whole thing over in 1806, with Emperor Francis II Habsburg officially dissolving it shortly after. 1,006 years of an institution that was both remarkably resilient and completely stupid. It is kind of impressive. Uh, The Austrian Habsburgs turned their attention east where, come on, man, the Ottomans are still knocking on the door of Vienna. Matt? You know, you might be wondering why the Ottomans, who'd been at ceaseless war with the Habsburgs in Hungary for a generation before the Thirty Years' War, didn't use that crisis as an opportunity to drive into the soft underbelly of the empire. Why not? Say it with me. Little Little Ice Age. Age. The climactic instability, crop failures, and famines of the mid-17th century didn't just affect Europe. In China, for example, the Ming Dynasty was overthrown by a peasant rebellion before the nomadic Manchu began their great enterprise of conquering the Middle Kingdom. In the Ottoman lands, meanwhile, rebellions, coups, and counter-coups saw one sultan get deposed twice and two others strangled to death during the time period of the Thirty Years' War. They were in no more condition to wage offensive war than the Habsburgs were. But stability was reestablished for the Ottomans as it was among the Christian powers, and in 1683, a Turkish army laid siege to Vienna. This led to the last of the Christian Crusader coalitions, the Holy League, being formed, with the winged hussars of (laughs) Polish King Jan Sobieski arriving at a pivotal moment to break the siege. We love our winged hussars, folks. That is cavalry guys with big wings. They literally rode rode into battle with fucking wings of angels on the back of their armor. See, that just... doesn't seem i look it sounds impressive but in terms of battle it's just it makes you a bigger target it seems like it would slow you down it just seems cumbersome They're You're aerodynamic put- <laughs> the wings don't worry about it it looks cool it does look cool uh, and that is really important you gotta you gotta intimidate the turk exactly and did they take vienna i don't think so <laughs> you're great score one for the wings then maybe if maybe if the u.s army had worn some wings in afghanistan we would have gotten somewhere <laughs> the wi- the winged so- the, the winged, winged operators swords. yes the winged operators of uh helmand province <laughs> That war lasted until 1699, with the Turks forced for the first time to conclude a treaty with the Habsburgs on unfavorable terms. The Austrian Habsburgs were able to consolidate their control over Hungary, but their power projection ambitions were permanently crippled. The Hohenzollern replaced the Habsburg as the first family of the German-speaking lands. The Habsburgs turned their focus to the east, leading to the 19th century establishment of the multilingual, multi-ethnic, Baltic-facing Austro-Hungarian Empire. The tumult and trauma of the next two centuries would end up seeing Habsburg Austria and Ottoman Turkey, whose conflict had defined the early modern era as two decomposing empires fighting side by side towards their annihilation in World War I. Funny how that works out. Finally, on to the real winners of the Thirty Years' War. The Dutch. Mm -hmm. The Dutch emerged from Westphalia at basically the height of their golden age, an independent republic knitting together a world-spanning commercial empire centered in Amsterdam, which had been virtually untouched by the conflicts of the last century. Dutch burgers are making money hand over fist, serving as a clearinghouse for bulk production goods such as grain and timber from the Baltic, supplying the entire continent with luxury goods, creating some of the most well-regarded art and culture of the period. Basically, they're having a great time. But so the Amsterdam merchants who had brought together the capital to fund the Dutch East and West India companies and to create the most powerful global trade and finance network didn't just do it for the glory of God. They wanted a permanent piece of the action. So they ensured hereditary control of their stock holdings and corporate offices with what were known as contracts of correspondence that fixed hereditary control over company and political power. You're getting feudalism in my capitalism. Now, those families used their joint stock company influence and political power in Amsterdam to dictate Dutch foreign and military policy. Holland had a veto over the fiscal policy of the entire United Provinces, and they used it to prevent the raising of taxes that could have maintained the Dutch military advantage. So instead, the Dutch military was defunded at the exact moment that the British were building a colonial and naval enterprise capable of competing with them. The overpowerful Amsterdam burghers, focused narrowly on their family wealth and tax burden, undermined the institutional vitality of the state that had allowed them to get so rich and powerful in the first place. So, in the recipe for their success, lay the seeds of future failure. The political leaders of the Dutch burghers, known as the Regents, led by brothers Johan and Cornelius de Witt, 
were able to successfully push the Orangist leaders out of power. That would be uh, William II and later William III of Orange. But throughout the 1650s and 60s, they found themselves in increasing naval competition with the English over colonial positions and trade prerogatives. The Dutch were able to muster their incredible for the time productive capacities of the United Provinces, you know, think like wind-powered sawmills just turning out ships, and were able to hold their own navally. But those navy ships were technically the property of the corporations, not the state, and their owners were reluctant to risk their investments in battle. This also came at the cost of deprioritizing the army, which had been the traditional power base of the House of Orange anyway. And who needs these ennobled military leaders when we've got the money in the banks in Amsterdam? This all culminates in a moment of such acute crisis that it actually has a name in Dutch history, the Rompjaar, the disaster year. In 1672, after a complicated series of diplomatic flip-flops and reversals of alliances, England and France team up for a joint attack on the Dutch. While the Dutch hold their own against the British Navy, the French are able to easily outmatch the Dutch land forces and advance quickly deep into the provinces. A general feeling of desperation and panic gripped the prim Calvinist Dutch. In August 1672, Regent Cornelius de Witt was arrested on paranoid suspicion of a plot to assassinate William III, possibly egged on by William himself. When Johann de Witt went to visit his brother in jail, the two were confronted by an angry Orangist mob who were eventually joined by the civic militia. The de Witt brothers, the lead figures of Republican rule in the provinces for 20 years, were shot. Their bodies were flayed and hung from gibbets, and the mob proceeded to cannibalize portions of their innards. And this wasn't some blood-crazed frenzy, mind you. It was a real Dutch barbecue with a notably disciplined mob building cook fires to roast the regent's livers. A bystander could observe the grisly sight of these good Protestants who had waged an 80-year war to be free of the superstition and mystic rites of the Catholic Church, taking into themselves the blood and flesh of their fallen leaders in a horrifying literalization of the Eucharist they fought so hard to deny. They literally ate them. Folks, they ate. They, <laughs> they, ate, those guys. they ate their guys. They ate their own guys. That's how you end a golden age, you yeah. know? You really, you really have to you do it. You know it was a really good golden age when you got to eat a guy when you know, realize it's ending. Yes. But all is not lost for the Dutch. Even as the Republican leaders were killed and cannibalized by their good, sensible, business-like subjects, William III had been able to retake control of the armed forces. Just as complete destruction at the hands of the French seemed inevitable, William activated the Dutch Waterline, an ingenious system of, you guessed it, aquatic engineering that systematically flooded a defensive line separating the core provinces of Zealand and Holland from the rest of the provinces. This effectively halted the French advance, buying the now-ascended Orange's party time to recover and staving off complete collapse. God, the Waterline, the Dutch, I, I, you just got to hand it to them. They're basically the dozers from uh, Fraggle Rock, if anyone remembers that show, the little guys who m- just maniacally built the little structures over yes. and over again. That they've been clear, they've been dealing with living in a fucking bog for a thousand years, and they did it by abstracting away value of mm-hmm. of figuring out a cultural and religious world that al- allowed them to save and to abstract away their investments rather than spend them the way that their more profligate uh, Catholic neighbors would. And in so doing, we're able to uh, leap forward in their ability to marshal resources. And put those investments in things like wind-powered sawmills and creating a ingenious water line to make sure that nobody's ever going to get to Amsterdam. And again, slavery. Yes. Industrialized slave uh, economy in the Atlantic world. I think we'll talk a little bit more about this in the following episodes, but it must, it must be emphasized that while we are focusing on the, uh, the continental development of these ruling regimes and the buildings of, of business and financial powers, it is all being done on the back of the transatlantic slave trade being knit together by these exact same people who are fighting for their religious freedom of conscience. Indeed. So there is more to the Franco-Dutch War, but uh, let's just leave it at William III feeling that it is his life's work to undermine French hegemony. This is not the last we will hear from this orange gentleman. Because even though we wrap up the crisis on the continent, our story is not quite over. Now we've got to turn north 
across the Channel to England, where a parallel crisis has been unfolding throughout the war. And now it's time to catch up with them and bring these two stories together. So James the first and sixth, first King James of England, sixth King James of Scotland, we'll explain later, had attempted to keep his island domains out of continental conflict by refusing to support his son-in-law Frederick V's bohemian adventure. But the religious ferment, economic instability, and climate disruption that led to the Thirty Years' War in Germany and civil conflicts across the continent didn't stop at the English Channel. As the Peace of Westphalia was being finalized, James's son Charles, King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, found himself in a position that would have been unthinkable only a few years prior, and which stunned and unsettled the courts of Europe. He was in the custody of the English Parliament, awaiting trial for treason. The very idea of a king committing treason was nonsensical. The king embodied the nation. How could he do treason to himself? The other rebellions of the era, from Catalonia to Naples, began with chants of long live the king, down with bad government. Somehow in England, that formula had been reversed. In January of 1649, the king would be led out to a scaffold and beheaded. His last thought, probably some variation of, how the hell did this happen? The answer is that England, that foggy, wet backwater of alewives and sheepfolds, had been changing beneath the sight or will of any living person. The social, technological, and economic developments that had broken up the stagnant feudal order across Europe were, in that dank laboratory of Albion, being knitted together into a new way of being in the world, one that would prove superior to all challengers in the coming struggle for continental power that Westphalia set the stage for. Charles I was far from the first victim of this fearsome new social machine, and he would be far from the last. on Earth is written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chapotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Austin Riley, Justin K. Comer, Alessandra Takeshi, The Great Varelli, Blackout Princess, John Ahrens, and Frederick Scarfone. Join us next week to watch the king lose his head. <laughs>